title of this morning's message is Leapy Lame for Joy. We're going to look at the first 10 verses of Acts chapter 3, if you'd read along with me. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried, whom they used to set down daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But when Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him, he said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And leaping up, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were recognizing him, that he was the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple and beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. If you were here for the introduction to the book of Acts, we went through a series of potential titles. It is, in fact, the Acts of the Apostles, but as John Stott points out, when he offered his title for the book of Acts, it is really the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his spirit through the apostles. In other words, Acts is a very Christocentric book. Chapter 1 and verse 1, Luke begins saying, the first account of Theophilus I compose, note this, about all that... Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. These are the works, the deeds, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, much of it centering around the ministry of the apostles who were sent by Christ to further the work. Luke wants to make the point that Jesus is not a crucified Savior who simply remained on the cross until he was taken down and is buried somewhere in Palestine. For Luke and for us, for those who know Christ, Jesus is a living and a reigning king. He is actively working to build his church. He is saving. He is sanctifying. He is returning in time to judge the living and the dead. This, this is not a religion like other religions where there is some dynamic leader, a prominent man who starts a movement and then dies and then his followers simply pick up the torch and kind of move on in the absence of their, their leader. No, Jesus is still living. Jesus is still active. Jesus is reigning, he is healing, he is teaching, he is building, he is saving, he is still carrying his redemptive plan forward, and he's doing it through the church by the power of the Spirit. The sovereign plan of God, God's great work of redemption, is moving down the tracks, and there is nothing and no one who can thwart his eternal and sovereign purposes. There is no power in heaven or on earth that can derail this train or even slow it, not even the grave. And Jesus is a risen king who is active in this world, and it is his deeds and his spirit through his apostles who are accomplishing great things in the furtherance of his kingdom. The text we just heard read from Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26, our passage, maybe it occurred to you as we were reading through it, that boy, there are a lot of similarities between what the apostles do in healing this lame man and what Jesus did in healing that lame man 
back in his time. And that's very intentional. I think this healing is, or the healing of Christ back in the Gospel of Luke is essentially replicated here by the apostles Peter and John. And in today's text, what we find, just like in, in Luke 5, is a man who, who had been for many, many years uh, lame and crippled, and it is this same man who is healed by the power of Jesus, by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Messiah himself. And this is a point to which Peter will go to great lengths in the chapters that follow. This is kind of the, uh, this is the miracle that sets the stage, if you will, for all that Peter's going to be explaining and Luke's going to be explaining over the next two chapters. We'll only get through the miracle today and we'll go to the, the further explanation for all that transpired in the weeks ahead. You remember when John the Baptist came into ministry, he had lived his life out in the wilderness eating locusts and wearing a really warm furry coat in the midst of the desert. It had to be relatively uncomfortable. You remember that he came on the scene very dramatically and all of Israel was coming to him at the Jordan to be baptized and there was this massive movement as, with John as the forerunner of Jesus and John very quickly, within six months or so, ends up confronting Herod about the fact that Herod had stolen his brother's wife, and he said, that's not lawful. You're sinning in doing this. And you remember that Herod had John imprisoned, and John very quickly was somewhat disillusioned, perhaps, as, as you and I would be if, if we knew that we had this very prominent place in the kingdom of God that had been prophesied by the prophet Isaiah and here we were now living our life out as the forerunner of the great Messiah and within six months we find ourselves in solitary confinement wondering what just happened. John sends his disciples, you remember that, to Jesus and they say, are you the expected one? I mean, do I have this right? Or is everything about my theology confused? He says, are you the expected one, the Messiah, or should, should we be looking for another? And we read these words in Luke 7 and verse 22 from Jesus' mouth. You go report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. You see, he was quoting from the book of Isaiah and he was essentially answering John, saying, John, settle in. Blessed are those who are not offended at me. Don't, don't take up offense, John. You're right in the middle of God's will, and things are working out exactly as they should be. This train is moving down the track. The lame are walking. This was enough evidence for John, of course, to know that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah and he had the right man. These things were indisputable evidence because they were things that no one else, frankly, could do except one sent from God. You remember Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he, and he says to him, look, good teacher, no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. Even the unbelieving understood the implications of the signs of the Son of Man. And this was also very convicting evidence because all of these things had been foretold in the Older Testament. Jesus could point back, just as he did with John, and said, this is the way this is all going to pan out. God's already told you. Think for a minute about all that's, that's happening. And so just as these supernatural works of divine power sent Je set Jesus apart in the eyes of men as, as the Messiah, now they are going to set apart the apostles as those who have been sent by Christ as author, authorized representatives of Jesus himself. Luke is recording for us clear evidence that Jesus the Christ is still accomplishing his works. He's furthering his kingdom and he's sending his gospel forth with power to triumph through his apostles. 
I want to give you five stones this morning, if you will, just kind of place markers to mark our path through this passage. We're going to look at the setting, the begging, the healing, the rejoicing, and we'll finish with the meaning. Let's begin with the setting. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And I think it's always important when we come to these texts to, to hear them again as if for the first time because we, we think somehow that Peter and John just, they knew, they knew Luke needed some, something to write about and so they said to themselves, well, let's give Luke something to write. Let's give him, let's give him a good topic. Let's go out and just put on a good miracle for him. That is not what's transpiring here. Luke, in fact, had many, many signs and miracles from which to draw, and Luke has a purpose in choosing this one. And it's not just that it's a historical event. It's not just that it's a real crowd pleaser. But what he wants to show again is that the Lord Jesus, though he has ascended, is still alive and still active and still working mightily through his people in the very same way that he was while he was on the earth. Chapter 2 and verse 43, look up at it. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostle. So this wasn't like one particular massive uh, miracle that stood above them all. This was just a miracle that Luke used to illustrate and, and demonstrate a number of things that he wanted to convey, and we need to understand that. Luke is being very specific and very intentional. And there's another thing we need to understand clearly, and it is this, that Jesus is the focal point of the miracle. And you say, we just read 10 verses and I only heard Jesus' name once. Right. I thought this was about Peter as the great miracle worker. I thought this was about Peter and John and going out in twos to... To minister. I thought this was about a lame man and, and the compassion of Peter to, to heal a lame man. Well, all of those things are there, but this, beloved, is, is, is as all miracles are, is a statement about the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a sign. That was John's favorite word. And we know that signs are not to be honored and adored. It's not the sign that says Lake Tahoe that's beautiful. What is captivating is the lake itself. Well, so it is with a sign. It was to lead to Jesus, and it will lead to Jesus. Peter will make sure of that in his preaching. In the passage that we heard earlier, the point of that passage was Christ's power and authority to forgive sins. And he demonstrated that power through the healing of the lame man. And so it is here. Peter will get on to the gospel message and to demonstrate that Christ came. And it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance, Paul says, that Christ Jesus came to save who? Sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And so it is here that this man is an illustration, really, of the salvation that Christ brings the authority that Jesus has to save and to rescue and to bring renewal. Jesus is the one who makes the spiritually lame to leap for joy. The text tells us they were going up to the temple for the hour of prayer. Now they were going up because that's where the temple was, up. It was up at the highest point of the city. They were going up to the temple. They went there uh, to this temple uh, for the purpose of prayer. The word that Paul employs here for temple is the general word for temple that refers to the, the whole temple precinct that included the, all the buildings, the porticos, the, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the men, the, the holy of holies, all of that the sanctuary, and they went up for the purpose of prayer. And it's important to, to know this. Again, we talked about this last week, that these new believers did not abandon entirely the Jewish context from which they had came. They had come. They were, they were going up to the temple because they were still part 
on the temple grounds of worshiping Christ as the Messiah. They did that publicly. We saw that in the last couple of weeks. In the two principal daily services, there was one in the morning and one in the evening, both marked by an offering and both marked by prayer. And so it was their habit, it was their custom to go up, and they were devoted. You saw that last week to the prayers. And so here Peter and John are going up again in the evening with the church for afternoon prayers. The text tells us it was the ninth hour. That means it's 3 o'clock, not 9 o'clock. Jews, you remember, figured time beginning at 6 a.m., with the sunrise, it's logical. The sun comes up, the day begins. 6 a.m., you add nine hours to that, where do you end up? You end up at three o'clock in the afternoon. And it is this three o'clock that one of the most amazing miracles happens at the hands of Peter and John. They're heading there for the purpose of prayer. Many, many others, there's just crowds thronging as they come up for the afternoon time of prayer. And one of them who is headed in that direction is a lame beggar. And he is being carried, the text tells us, to the temple precinct. And we're not told how. We don't know. Was he dragged on a, on a stretcher? Was he carried on a bed? Was he on the back of someone? We don't know. Acts 4.22 tells us that this man was more than 40 years old. He was a full-grown man being carried up to the temple to beg for money. Well, that's the setting. Let's look at the begging. Verse 2. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried, whom they used to set down daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms from those who were entering the temple. When he, when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. Now, we're not sure what it was about seeing Peter and John. I don't think it's because they were in a three-piece suit. I don't think it's because they had gold chains hanging around their neck. My guess is that this, this man had been there on that temple mount for decades. I think that he, in all likelihood, knew who Jesus was. He certainly had heard of him. You remember that Jesus cleansed the temple. Lots of stuff happened at the temple. The day of Pentecost happened there. You have you have. Probably all of the, the preaching that occurred was in that basic vicinity after they had left the upper room. And all the preaching and, and th that had been done there. This man was aware of these men and perhaps he saw them in the midst of the crowd. Perhaps it was just something that providentially God ordained. Who is this beggar? Who is this lame beggar? Well, the text tells us he's handicapped. He is completely crippled and had been from birth. He had a congenital disability. He is lame. He cannot stand. He cannot walk. He's over 40 years old, and you can imagine that whatever muscles he was born with were utterly atrophied. And he has been in this pitiful state for a long, long time and he's being carried up to this place, and he's being carried up to this begging spot daily. And again, you have to pause there, and you have to think about the realities of day by day, rising, somebody coming to scoop you up out of your bed, somebody having a group of people, perhaps relatives, perhaps friends, coming and, and carrying you day by day, Amidst the crowds, you were, you were very, a very public figure in some ways. And he would sit there near that gate. In the fall and in the winter and come spring and through the heat of summer, day by day, the same place, the same routine, people coming by. It, it, it's an advantageous place, isn't it, to beg by the temple. You, you, need, you need benefactors. And by necessity then, he needs to sit in a place where there is a thoroughfare and lots of people are coming by. And he knows he has to garner enough pity every day to get enough to make it to tomorrow where he will sit again in this same place begging again for support. 
their day was not our day. This man in our day would have mailed to him a blue placard and he would have a, a nice parking spot reserved for him right at the front of Nordstrom Rack. He, he is a man who would have found that every building he wanted to enter, he could because there were requirements that there be ramps, that drinking fountains would be low so that he was sure to get a cool dip of water if he needed it. He would find, he would find every kind of help imaginable. And frankly, beloved, it's, it's a blessing to be part of a, a country like that. May we never moan about the relief of the poor. May we be different than, than, than so many who, who disdain the poor, who disdain the, those who are disabled. There was no welfare system. There was no government handout. There was no pride industries. There was no opportunities for the disabled. You were resigned to begging day after day just to survive, and the evening sacrifice provided a very good time as there were many people, and those people going up to worship would have money in their pockets. And giving of alms was very central in Jewish thought and the practice of Judaism. And it was there that he was set next to a gate called Beautiful. And this, this is interesting. There, there's a lot written on this by the commentators, people wrestling with which gate exactly this was. There's a little mystery around it. There are a number of different places on the Temple Mount where this gate, Beautiful Gate, might have been. I agree with those who think it's most likely this very large, ornate gate that was in the temple precinct that separated the court of women from the court of the Gentiles. The Jewish historian Josephus writes these words, quote, of the gates, nine were completely overlaid with gold and silver, as also their doorposts and lintels. But one, that outside the sanctuary, was of Corinthian bronze, and it far exceeded in value those plated with silver and set in gold. It was a very ornate gate, and Josephus goes on to tell us it took 20 men to close it. Now that's a gate. That's a gate in Texas, right? That is a gate. Wherever this gate was, and wherever it was that this man sat, the point is that he was a regular here. and that he was well known by all who passed by. You look at verse 10, it tells us right from the start, they were recognizing him. And that might bring up some pity in your heart for this man. You might think to yourself, boy, that's a miserable existence, but that's not the worst of it. What is not mentioned in Luke's text, but we know from other texts of Scripture, and we know from what we know historically about this culture. And, and this is very important to our understanding of all that's going on here, is that there was a cultural stigma attached to disability. This was very, very humbling to be this man, suffocatingly so. Again, think about it. Put yourself there. You ever been in a wheelchair? Temporarily, you broke a leg, you came out of surgery in the hospital, and they want to put you in the chair. And what do you say to them? I don't need it. I'm okay, really. No, you're going to sit in that chair, and we are going to wheel you to the outside. And you know, you know you're just hoping. There are not a lot of people in the emergency room. You're hoping that, you know, your, your wife didn't bring people with, with her to pick you up because it's humbling to be wheeled along in a chair most of us would rather go without than take a handout. It is extremely hard to be on the receiving end of things. But think about being on the receiving end of things every day. And being able to do just about nothing but take. This man was the lowest of the low, and he was utterly dependent upon everybody. 
and this stigma and the shame that was attached to deformity or disability in the, in the first century was almost more than you can bear if you really think about what this man must have gone through. You recall the question that Jesus' disciples ask of Jesus in John chapter 9 when they encounter the blind man. Do you remember that? He was born blind. No one had ever healed a man born blind. Still no one's ever healed a man born blind. And the question that popped out of the disciples' mouth was the common assumption of the day, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born like this? You see, that, <laughs> that encapsulates the view of the day. It's pitiful enough that this man was disabled. How much worse is it that in the mind of every Jewish worshiper who passed by, they would look at him and say, he deserved it. I wonder what he did. I wonder what his parents did. Well, they knew his lameness was a result of personal sin, generational sin. They knew full well when they looked at that body crippled up in that spot with a cup in his hand, begging at the top of his lungs for support. They, they knew that there was some level in which this man was getting his just desserts. He was under the ju judgment of God. And again, beloved, may that kind of thinking never be our kind of thinking. Those people who can work and don't work and sit there with a dog in their backpack, able-legged, able-armed, able-mind, who say will work for food but don't, you can drive by them with a smirk on your face. But the poor will ever be with us. And those who really have, have come from the womb as no consequence of their own doing, but simply the lot which God has allotted them in life, and not because they deserved it, but because he has a purpose in it. We should look on them with compassion, but also with dignity. It ought to not cause us to despise them, but it ought to draw us toward them. We should be filled with compassion and kindness and respect for the dignity of those who suffer under such afflictions and gratitude that God has not made you that way. Peter and John were moved. Let's look at the healing. Third, verse four. But when Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him. So we, we have an exchange of gazes here. <laughs> the blind man, or the, the lame man saw them coming it would have been something if the blind man saw them coming. The lame man saw them coming, and somehow you can see he shifts into the mode like these are guys I'm going to get something from. And now Peter, along with John, fix their gaze. They zero in. They target down. They've got him right in the crosshairs. And Peter says to this man, look at us. And again, I think it takes us right back to the indication of shame that this man wore like a cloak. When you're a beggar, what do you do? You avert your eyes. You look down. You don't dare look up at the able and the capable and the wealthy and the self-sufficient. No, you look down and you just hope that they'll be merciful enough to fill your cup with something. And the text tells us that he was begging, and by begging it means over and over and over again. He had lifted his voice, he had cast his eyes down, and he was pleading repetitively for money. And Peter locks onto this man, and John locks onto this man, and they demand eye contact. Look at us. And verse 5 says, and he began to give, give them his attention expecting to receive something from them. 
And the something he expected was not the something he received. I'll tell you that. These men, these men, Peter and John, were not like the other men who, who condescendingly fulfilled their religious duty by flinging a few coins in the cup on their way by. No, these men engaged him, called for eye contact. They spoke to him like he was a fellow human being. These men were personal, and they were intentional, and this man's heart swelled in anticipation that these guys are the real deal, and they are going to fill my cup. This was going to be a very profitable day. But Peter said, I do not possess silver or gold. This guy's anticipation, his, his heart that was so eager and buoyed up with the thought of, of some profit, as quickly as his expectation rose, his heart must have sunk at these words. Peter says, let me put this right up front. What you're looking for, I ain't got. I don't have any money. And that's an amazing statement, beloved, in our day with the, with the private jets and the sprawling mansions of the prosperity preachers. Peter and John were not living on a plane any higher from those that they were ministering to, and the church in the Jerusalem was poor, and therefore Peter and John had no silver or gold. Jesus had no place to rest his head. And these men were following in the footsteps of Christ. And the disappointment for this man must have been jarring, but it was very, very temporary. Because Peter says, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. Literally in the Greek, what I have, this, I give to you. What, what did Peter have? He, he had no money. He had no power in and of himself. What could he give to this man? Well, he possessed the power and the authority of Jesus the Messiah to heal this man. And Peter says to him, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene walk. Those are very, very important words. This is not some phony faith healer chanting some kind of mantra in the name of Jesus Christ, the, the Nazarene walk. This is Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, commanding this man to walk, and you say that is utterly absurd, except for that powerful name of Jesus Christ. By the, in the name of means by, the, by virtue of the person and the ongoing work, by the power and the divine authority of the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. And again, Peter is not the miracle worker. He's just the authorized mediator of this great miracle, whom the worker of miracles worked. And so he gives him a commandment. In the name of the glorified Messiah, he says, you walk, layman. And again, think about that. That was gutsy, was it not? That was gutsy. You ever been hesitant to pray for somebody, wondering if God would in fact heal? Here's Peter, by the power of the Spirit, accomplishing something that man can't accomplish. The text goes on, verse 7, to tell us that Peter seized him by the right hand, and he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. Peter reaches out and grabs this man, pulls him to his feet, and all, imagine, how many futile attempts did this man make over the course of 40 some odd years to stand up and just take a step? How many times in his bedroom did he hang onto the bedpost and hope that today would be the day? Here Peter raises this guy to his feet and immediately, not gradually, but immediately his, his feet and his ankles are strengthened. That is to say that there is strength and there is stability. He is balanced and he's sure-footed. This, this is not 
This is not Bambi on the ice. You remember the scene where the legs go out and and he's kind of spinning around. This is not some young caribou in the wilderness kind of wobbly and trying to get it together. This is boom, I'm up. And he's strong. He's got his sea legs. He didn't need to learn to walk. You did. Your kids did. But this man was not tottering, needing, needing, needing just to get enough strength to, to maybe tentatively take a stride. I'm sure he felt a little bit tentative, but very briefly because he is filled with exuberant joy. This is number four, the rejoicing, verse eight. And leaping up, he stood upright, he began to walk. And he entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. Before the service, Laura Whipperman entertained me with some version of a song about, (laughs) how's it go, Laura? (laughs) Ask Laura to do it for you later. It's really excellent. You'll be entertained. I love this. This man leaps to his feet. He stood bolt upright like a strong man stands with posture. And he began to walk. And if you think, this just can't get any better, oh, it does. Where did he go? He walked right into the temple. The lame man who's on the outside is now the living man on the inside. The lame man cut off from the worship of Israel who begged and watched from a distance while others went into the temple now is walking with them. He entered the temple with them. No more piggyback rides, beloved. No more pleading for charity. His shame and his reproach is gone. His mourning is turned into joy. The one who was hopeless is now imminently happy, glad in God. And he is filled with irrepressible joy. He was walking. That's enough for me. No, he was leaping. Really? And he was praising God. And again, the verb tenses in the original, he is walking back and forth. He is, he is moving. He's like your kid in that shoe store when they're about eight and you buy your, su- your son a brand new pair of tennis shoes. And they just, they want to show you how, fa- how fast they are. And they're running back and forth. And you think, first, where did he get the energy? And secondly, this is a little odd, this guy... This guy, again, remember where he is. He is walking back and forth. He's leaping, and then he walks some more, and then he leaps some more. He, he, is, he is like a calf in the field, like a newborn. And all the while he is doing this, he is shouting, Praise to God! Hallelujah! Thank you, Jesus! In the temple. Beloved, this is not normal temple protocol. You can't do this. His hands are not folded. He is not using his inside voice. And you can hear the authorities coming to him saying, Sir, you have got to stop. You are making a ruckus. What you are doing is distracting to all the the religious machinery and all the proceedings that mark this holy place. This is indecorous. This is inappropriate. This is unseemly and unbecoming, and frankly, it's borderline cheeky. You can't do this up here. And you can just see, can't you, all the, all the hushers piously coming to, to hush him. I have known parents who, who chided their children because they moved a little too much during the morning's worship. Golly, save us from that.
we could use a little of this heart, a little of this mindset. It wouldn't be bad if a little of this man's joy splashed out and over his, the cup of his life and just kind of fell on us. That would be okay. And you sang this morning, by the way. Man, did my heart rejoice. Man, did you sing. Mm. And I give God all the praise, glory, and honor. Beloved, we should be the most joy-filled people. If it comes from a right heart and it comes from a, a captivated soul, a soul that is captivated by the God who saves sinners, I just got to tell you, a little swang is okay. And you can ask King David about that when you get to heaven. It really is okay. And for these religious authorities, it was too late. This was a bona fide miracle. It had taken place. There was no denying it. <laughs> and so I, I can see Luke penning these words very intentionally. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. How different this is, this healing from the shenanigans, again, of today's supposed faith healers. This was not a man with a backache. This was not a man with a headache. This was not a woman with some purported breathing difficulty. This was a man with verifiable disability. This was a congenital disability. He'd gone 40 years without the ability to take a step under his own power, and everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. Jesus, Jesus healed paralytics. Jesus healed epileptics. Jesus healed lepers, and he, 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 he gave sight to the blind. He cast out demons. He even raised the dead, and you can't get more verifiable than that. No matter what they say on Princess Bride, nobody is mostly dead. This was real stuff, verifiable stuff. These people had doctor's notes. They, they were, in fact, disabled and desperate. And beyond being verifiable, this healing was instantaneous. This man did not gradually improve. Peter commanded him, walk, and he leapt. Beyond that, this healing was complete. This bony-legged man did not leave with a limp. He did not leave with a prescription for physical therapy. He was not healed on Tuesday and then back at the begging gate on Friday because his psychosomatic healing somehow gave way again to the realities of his lameness. No, he was lame no longer. Think of it. Lame no longer. He lost the label by the power of Jesus altogether. If I can put it in spiritual language, the old man was gone and he was a new man. Gone was the wheelchair, gone was the pallet, gone was the need for another's strength. I couldn't help in, in studying this passage and thinking about Johnny Erickson Tata. A remarkably godly woman whom God has not chosen, at least yet, in this life to free from decades of quadriplegia, there is nothing next to nothing that she can actually do. And yet, I would argue, there have been few, at least in my lifetime, who have been used as mightily as she. Her day's coming. And I'll bet you her vertical jump is going to be better than mine.
which isn't saying much. This miracle was verifiable. It was instantaneous. It was complete. It was public. Think of it, beloved. You, you could go to the temple. You could go there again tomorrow, and you would, you would go to the gate beautiful, and, 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 and you would go over to that, that time-worn spot where this man sat, and you would say, I just want to put some cups in the blind, or some coins in the blind man's cup, and you would stop yourself and you'd say, oh, oh yeah. And so you'd make your way down from the temple, back to the blind man's house. Maybe it was a mile, maybe it was two, I don't know how far away it was, but you would knock on the door and through your peripheral you would see through the window the blind man making his own way under his own strength. And he would open that door with irrepressible joy. And you could say to him, I want to hear about your healing. I'm just here to verify it. I heard it's unbelievable. And he could say to you, I'll tell you what, why don't we just walk up to the temple and I'll tell you along the way. Verse 9, all the people saw him walking and praising God and they were recognizing him that he was the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms and they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And again, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to put yourself there. This sense of wonder, the word means astonishment. It just blew their minds. The word amazement is the word from which we get ecstasy. There, there was a sense in which they were shocked. This was a shock and awe miracle. They were out of their minds about this. <laughs> and this kind of thing, as you might imagine, is a really good way, if you're going to preach a message, to draw a crowd. I think in my junior English class, they, they called this a hook. And we're going to see this throughout the book of Acts, that as these miracles and these signs which accompanied these apostles by the power and authority of Jesus, that they're often going to be enacting an, a, a miracle in the presence of people, and that is going to give them a platform then to preach the glories of the Christ who is the great miracle worker. And we'll see just that this coming week, Lord willing, as Peter takes this miracle and begins to explain why this all took place. Well, we've only the meaning left, and I'm not going to give it all to you because that would be repetitive with much of next week, but I want to give you just a few things to kind of hang around your neck as you walk out of here. Why did Luke recount this miracle? Well, I want to give you three reasons. There are more. And the first two I've already touched on in the introduction. Number one, it demonstrates the power and authority of the ascended Christ. It demonstrates the power and the authority of the ascended Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, who comes from Nazareth, is the one who now exercises the power of God, the creator. And these people's eyes are being opened that this man, who's not only the perfect man from Nazareth, but he is also perfect God, who, who has the power of God to accomplish what only God can accomplish. And so this thing happens because just like the blind man, it's so that the glory of God might be displayed in him. If you look at chapter 3 and verse 16, notice it's on the basis of faith in his name. Whose name? Jesus' name of Nazareth. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which is through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Look at over at chapter 4. He says a very similar thing. Verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands before you in good health. In other words, this man was an object lesson for the glory of Christ. 
And we're going to see this in detail next week, but boy, do we need to, to learn it. So I'll have no trouble reminding you of this next week. But listen, Jesus is the superstar of life. Do you get that? It's not about how many likes you have on your Facebook page. It's not about whether you were homecoming queen or, or quarterback of the, of, of the varsity team. This life, your life, my life, the whole of life is about the glory of Christ. This isn't about Peter. It's not even about the blind or the, the, the lame man. We are nothing. No man is anything. The best of men are men at best. We exalt him. We promote him. He is in the spotlight. And beloved, any time you find yourself sort of engaging in a conversation in a way where your heart grows envious of somebody else because they were exalted, you need to repent. You need to repent for your own desire to be exalted when Christ is the glorious Christ, you are not. And you need to repent of the kind of heart that looks at somebody else's exaltation and says, man, I wish I had that. Christ may exalt you, but it's not so that you may be exalted in the eyes of men. It's so that you may, from that position of exaltation, exalt him. And that's different. We are to be humble. We are to be lowly. We are to be like Peter who says, don't look at me, my friends. I did nothing here. It's all about Christ. Secondly, in this miracle, we see the progress of God's program and plan, and that is clearly something that Luke wants to demonstrate throughout this, is the irrepressible nature of the plan and program of, of God in redeeming mankind. It can't be stopped. Nothing can stop, not even congenital lameness. And this marks the messianic age, this kind of thing. We see that in the book of Isaiah, chapter 35 and verse 6. Listen to it. That's Isaiah 35 and verse 6. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. Those of you who have gardens understand that, don't you? You put up your little piddly fence at four feet and the deer scoffs. You say, well, let's raise it to eight, honey. The deer says, no problem. <laughs> you better have like a 15-foot if you have any hope of somehow stalling those deer from getting in to eat your roses. That's just the way it is. The lame are going to leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. You see, this speaks of the characteristics of the messianic age, and it anticipates ultimately in the end the millennial kingdom when Christ will reign on earth and he will restore all that is broken. This is our hope. Christ is continuing to build his church, and he is furthering his kingdom. He is bringing salvation to his people, and he is restoring, and he will ultimately one day bring full cosmic restoration, and all will be renewed, and that will be a day where all of us will be bounding, abounding in joy. Thirdly, I don't know that this is Luke's purpose, but I think this is a fitting, this episode is a fitting illustration, an apt parallel, if you will, to God's salvation of broken sinners. It illustrates the mighty salvation of God. What Jesus does for this man physically parallels what God does sovereignly in the work of the soul of man to bring salvation into the lives of those whom he's saving. This man is born disabled. He is lame and he has no hope of healing. There is hope in no other. There is no other name under heaven by which this man will ever be free from his lameness. Beyond that, this man's sights are set way too low. He's not seeking healing. He's just looking for a handout. He's utterly misdirected. It's understandable that he's misdirected, but he is misdirected. And this man's he, he is healed apart from any work on his part. Did he do anything? Did he conjure up enough faith so that God would be permitted to accomplish this in his life? 
And that's always the false teacher, those false, pathetic, fake healing ministries, casting salt on the wounds of those who are truly disabled. Johnny Erickson will tell you she's been to those things herself back in her youth. And the discouragement, the suicidal discouragement that came because she kept getting pulled out of line. Well, no wonder they pulled her out of line. Nobody can fix her problem. Not Benny Hinn. Uh, but nobody doesn't always mean nobody. Because there is one. And by the power, the sovereign power of Jesus the Messiah, Johnny's disability will be fixed. Whether on earth or in heaven, it will be fixed. And there is only one who can do it. And beyond that, this man's healing again restores him in full and it results in great joy. His shame is completely removed. In fact, his shame became the reason for his joy. Every time he walked in and somebody says, I want to hear about what happened to you. I wasn't there that day. This is amazing. You're on your feet. He delighted to tell the story, who he was, and now who he is, and all of that by the power of this man named Jesus, the Messiah. Beloved, is that your heart? What the Lord did for this man physically, he can do for any one of you spiritually. And the question really comes down to what do you want from Jesus? What do you want from him? Most men do not want nearly enough. A simple handout will do, a little money, a little ease, a little piggyback ride, a little pleasure, a little comfort at the thought of death. My friend, can I ask you this morning, have you come to grips, and every one of us needs to face this question, have you come to grips with the reality that you are nothing but a lame beggar, spiritually speaking? You're a taker. You have nothing to give. There is nothing noble. There is nothing that God looks upon and says, that man, that woman, they've got things that I need. They're beautiful to me. They're gorgeous. Golly, did you see the way they behaved? What a, what a good person. That is not the way God thinks, and that is not the way God thinks ever, because there is nothing that is good in us innately. There is nothing that is attractive to a holy God in a sinful creature at all. And you say, well, why? Why would he send his son then? Because sovereignly he has loved us according to his own purposes. And praise be to God, there is nothing in me. But the goodness all rests in him, and I am grateful for it. Are you? Have you come to that place in your life where you just see yourself like this man with nothing to offer and everything to gain, your eyes downcast, spiritually impoverished, mourning over your sin, thirsty for hunger, thirsting and hungering for, for some righteousness from somewhere? Oh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Not in the reforming of your own life, but in the receiving of the righteousness of Christ. You see, Jesus takes those who are spiritually lame, spiritually poor, the weak, the needy, the broken, and he will make you whole. It is not the healthy, Jesus says, who need a physician, but the sick I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. For those here this morning who are still stuck in their deception and their blindness, who think they see, I tell you, on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, your sin remains and you are under judgment. But beloved, for those of you who understand that you are blind, behold your Savior come. And leap ye lame for joy.